What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 31 of the Next Bite Podcast. In today's show, we're talking about the Dragonfly drone that will help us to explore one of Saturn's moons. How AI helped MIT researchers figure out how to treat muscular dystrophy and the wearable face tracking camera that will change how we monitor health and attend video conferences. Roll the intro music. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. Before we jump into our first article, I want to give a quick thank you to, I mean, one of our closest friends of the podcast, Johnny. Uh, in episode 29, we talked about how to make quieter airplanes, and I mentioned that the decibel scale was exponential, but Johnny sent us a message and corrected us and told us that it's actually logarithmic, which actually has some pretty serious implications. It means that the four decibel decrease that we're talking about that this technology can bring to airplanes actually reduces the amount of energy being emitted at the wing by over 50%. So that's a huge change, and we wouldn't have noticed that unless Johnny brought this up to us. So thank you, Johnny, for bringing it up. Farboat and I were talking about it, and we think this is one of our favorite parts of doing this podcast with a community instead of to an audience. So thank you for being a part of the community. We love learning from you and making sure that we are you know, given the correct information to everyone. So keep us on our toes. Let us know if we say something wrong and we're happy to share it with everyone. We're learning as well as you. So we want to share it with everyone. So thanks, Johnny. Well said, man. Well said. All right. Let's jump into our first article. We're talking about Dragonfly, which is a drone developed by NASA, University of Idaho, and Cornell University. And what this Dragonfly is, is it's a drone that's going to explore Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons. Uh, uh, wait, we've explored Titan before, haven't we? Yeah, so there were a couple previous missions that have explored Titan. Uh, the main one's called Cassini, mm-hmm. and it's a satellite that orbited around Saturn uh, for almost 13 years. And it also uh, had a probe that it dropped, I think, called the Huygens, Huygens probe. Um, right. And that probe was on the satellite, and basically it shot it down out of the satellite to explore Titan. But so the one question I had when I was reading this is why do we care so much about Titan? It seems like a lot of effort to be spent to look at one moon that is part of one planet and part of the outer solar system. So why do we care about Titan so much? And it's basically to say that there's a lot of organic matter on Titan and a lot of the same compounds that make up earth are also made up on Titan. There's actually liquid on the surface of Titan. It has an atmosphere. It has weather with rain and clouds. It is one of the most similar celestial bodies to Earth in our solar system, there are some caveats. Um, the liquid and the gas there on the surface there aren't water. It's methane. So okay. it's different, but it's also another organic molecule. So it gives us hope that this is one place where we could explore for origins or traces of new or previous life on Titan. So we're going to Titan because it looks a lot like Earth, and there's a lot of promise for something living being somewhere there on the surface. Okay, so, so Cassini... I know a little bit about it. Launched in 1997. It had the probe on it. It crashed into the atmosphere in 2017. So we've learned a lot about Cassini during that, what, 20-year period. Why are we going back now? Like, what are we trying to figure out now that we didn't with Cassini? Okay, so 
one of the big things about Titan that we're not really sure okay. is we know that there's a lot of methane. The atmosphere is super thick, but it makes it really hard to tell whether the surface of uh, Titan is liquid. Is it solid? Um, is it you know made of some other rock or is it made of frozen methane? We're not sure of all these things. Is it made of frozen ice? Is there water there? Yeah, it's yeah. basically been impossible for us to see what the surface of Titan looks like because the atmosphere is so, so thick. So the Huygens probe was basically the first attempt to go into that atmosphere, and they weren't sure, and they basically, well, they were sure that the probe would be destroyed when it landed. So what <laughs> they did was they made it, uh, you know, the point of it was to try to collect data about the atmosphere on its way down and shortly after landing. It wasn't meant to explore the surface. It's meant to go in one spot. Got it. We talked about the Ingenuity rover on Mars, or the Ingenuity drone on Mars, the rotorcraft that's exploring Mars there, and it's flown around right. to a couple different spots to explore the Mars surface. They're trying to do a similar thing with Dragonfly on Titan. So uh, think of a drone with one propeller, a rotorcraft, that's going to fly around to different spots on Titan, and it's going to stay there. Each time that it you know flies to a different spot and lands, it's going to stay there for one Titan day, which is 16 Earth days, and collect a lot of data around what types of materials there are on the surface and what types of you know atmosphere atmospheric makeup there is, basically to try to understand, are there precursors for life here? If so, okay. how are they organized? And also, are there signs of previous life here? So it's hard to know whether Titan um, is in the... They call it prebiotic stage, so before life exists there, or if it's postbiotic, meaning life no longer exists there, or even if it's biotic and life does exist there. But we don't know that until we send Dragonfly there to look at the surface, so that's what it's trying to do. All right, so let me try to wrap this up because you said a lot in a very short amount of time. All right, so with Cassini, we went to it and we looked at the planet and we could kind of see what was going on there, but there was a thick cloud of methane, so we couldn't get an understanding of the yeah, surface conditions. Cassini was only orbiting the planet. Orbiting it. Then we tried sending in a probe, but our scientists were like, this is probably going to fail, so let's just try to study the atmosphere as it comes down. Yeah. Right? Now we want to understand the surface conditions, and we want to understand you know, how life is forming there, if it has already formed there, and look for biosignatures, essentially. Right? Exactly. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. And... I, I like the the analogy, well, not analogy, the similarity you drew from ingenuity because when we talked about ingenuity, I remember we mentioned that NASA's goal was to see how rotorcraft behaved in a you know different planet so that they could apply for different missions. And here we are, what, six months later, I think, talking yeah, about how they're it's They're talking about sending one to Titan. Yeah. And what's even more interesting about this, we talked about how hard it is for ingenuity to fly on Mars because of the atmospheric conditions there. The atmosphere was a lot less dense than Earth and that it makes it harder for a rotorcraft to generate thrust. Well, on Titan, it has lower gravity, about one-seventh the amount of gravity there is on Earth, and it also has a much thicker atmosphere because it's methane. The air there is made of mostly methane as opposed to on Earth where it's nitrogen and oxygen. Um, it's four times more dense. And basically, I crunched some numbers. I did some back-of-the-napkin calculations. Of course you did. This might be a great place for Johnny to correct me again. <laughs> so keep your ears perked up, Johnny. Um, basically, I think what this calculates to when you look at the thrust versus the gravity, um, the Dragonfly drone will need to move around 5.3 times less air to hover on Titan than it would on Earth. Um, and what that means is it can spend a lot less energy or you can have a much smaller propeller size. So it makes it a lot more convenient. And basically what this is telling the NASA scientists is 
Titan is a great place to fly a drone. This is a great way to explore the surface rather than a rover. So they're going to send Dragonfly, a drone, to Titan to explore it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It looks like the the drone is the best fit for this mission to begin with. Especially to fly to deep space. You want to, you know, have the smallest, most efficient thing possible. And it seems like Dragonfly is the way to do it. Yeah, dude, it adds up. So now let's jump from delivering drones to delivering drugs. And I promise you uh, it's better than just delivering any kind of drug because we're going to be talking about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a topic coming out of MIT, but before I get into it, I want to give some context about what Duchenne muscular dystrophy is. Um, It's a condition where it's typically found in young boys. It's usually diagnosed around the age of five when your body stops making a specific kind of protein. I think it's called dystrophin or something. Okay. Uh, essentially your muscles start degrading about the age of 12 people stop being able to walk and the life expectancy is around 26 years old because your liver and your heart starts shutting down on you so this is a very serious disease and if there's any way we could fix it it would be great so the big question is are, are there like any solutions and fortunately in 2019 this company called sarepta therapeutics announced a drug which could directly deliver um, the, this medicine to your body's cells and tell it tell that gene that's making the faulty proteins to reverse. Okay, um, so DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Yes. Basically, you've got these muscles in the body. It mostly is in young boys. They can only live to 26 because mm-hmm. their muscles stop producing this thing called dystrophin. Um, and we already have a drug that can modify this gene to say produce more dystrophin so it basically helps treat if not cure dmd so why why isn't this the end of the story what, what's the problem here i'm happy you ask so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna call the drug by its uh acronym because i really don't want to pronounce the whole thing it's called pmo okay. pmo can do the thing which is essentially the cure but it's the downside of it is that it's not very great at going through the cell membrane and going through the nucleus membrane. Okay. So and once you it need gets to go through it to deliver the cell, it, it yes. works, but it's very challenging to get that drug in there. Yes. Yeah, so now the question is, the caveat, I guess, is can we make it any better? Like, can we okay. make it permeate those membranes better? And the answer, the short answer is yes. Okay. We can How? use, <laughs> it's called uh, cell penetrating peptides. That's the, uh, what are the, the floaties or the training wheels that you can put on this PMO to allow it to do this thing better? And it's composed of um, these amino acids and different configurations of them can give you a better ability to penetrate. Okay. This is kind of where the research starts coming into play, right? Because we know these amino acids can help. And let, let's say like adding X amino acid can increase the penetration by 10%. But if you start grouping them together, like different configurations of them, you can get exponential increase in how well they can penetrate the cell membranes. Okay. So this student coming out of uh, MIT, he's, he's getting a PhD from the material science department. He had this idea of applying artificial intelligence to this and also using traditional chemistry experimental data. So these chemists got together. They used 57 different... Um, uh, amino acids, and they came up, my bad, they used 57 different uh, cell penetrating peptides composed of different amino acids, and they linked them together to create 600 different mini proteins. That's that's what you call them when you group them together differently. Okay. And then they tested them to see how well they were penetrating these membranes. They gathered that data, and they created a convolutional neural network that analyzed 
it was basically looking for patterns, what groups of amino acids work the best together. And it provided feedback on what we should actually be spending our time investigating. Right. Okay, so so th- this all sounds great. It reminds me a lot, actually, of what we talked about in episode two. Yes. We, with the it's also an MIT group. Yeah. For treating tuberculosis. Yes. So they had a drug that they knew could treat tuberculosis and they used an AI model to figure out which peptides, similar things, which peptides, which many proteins um, could be used to best deliver the pep- the tuberculosis drug to the affected cells. That's basically what they're doing here, right? They they trained a neural network to help them identify which combinations of these peptides will help bring this drug that we already know works inside the cells that are affected by DMD and help cure it. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And what, one of the things I want to point out here is um, the researchers noted that like having a computer analyze these things is not that difficult. What is difficult is seeing how it plays nicely with actual like uh, biological components. And that's where the experimental data comes into play. And that's what, what they are hoping their model can, you know, fix. So I, what I was trying to say earlier is that like, this sounds great. What is this actually going? Like, what's the outcome? Yeah. Like, how does it affect us? The so what? Yeah, the so what? Um, the, the first iteration of, of this uh, artificial intelligence was actually kind of iffy. It was incorporating amino acids that, in order to penetrate the cell wall, they were actually breaking the cell wall, which okay. is a no-no. You don't want so that. So it was penetrating it, but it was also rupturing these cells and destroying them. Exactly. So the researchers had to take a step back and be like, well, let's just recalibrate, optimize this thing so that it doesn't prioritize it so highly. They ran it again, and they got a proposition with this the CPP, or mini protein actually, that could increase the penetration 50-fold. But okay. they had to test it out, right? Because the computer's telling you one thing, you want to see if it works. They yeah. tested it on mice, and it actually turned out to be true. Okay, so it, the computer said, hey, this will increase this drug penetration by 50, pool, like 50 times. They tested it in the mice, and it was 50 times better, and it also didn't hurt them? Yes, and okay. I'm, I'm glad you bring up that it didn't hurt them because I want to take it back to the drug that we talked about that was announced in 2019 that's supposed to be amazing. So using less of the drug is actually better for the patient because it's just uh, how it affects your body as a whole. It's actually cheaper as well, so it's more cost-effective. But that, that means once we start incorporating these mini-proteins to deliver the drugs more effectively, it's going to be better for the patients and it's going to be more cost-effective, meaning more people will have access to it. That makes sense because like, the PMO drug is probably the really expensive part. So you have yes. a lower dosage. It's probably less frequent. Um, so you don't have as many bad side effects, and you also don't have to pay for as much PMO. This sounds like it's pretty promising. I'm excited that it worked well in mice, and I'm looking forward to seeing you know if they progress through these trials and get to test it on humans. Me too. And most importantly, to help change these DMD patients' lives because you know the life expectancy is around 26. It would be really cool if they can at least give them more life to live and change the way that their you know their life trajectory works because i know that they lose the ability to walk by 12 yeah Um, i I imagine um being able to just even extend their their ability to walk and move around or extend their life expectancy would be really impactful for this patients and their families yeah i I don't know if you could tell but i'm pretty passionate about this I, i didn't know a whole lot about muscular dystrophy once i started reading this article but it was kind of an emotional ride just reading the you know how it affects people, but then reading that there is a solution and there are people working on this. And I quickly just want to highlight this PhD student. His name is Sumesh Mohapatra. He's he's not only done this amazing work, but he noticed that there was this like, you know, disconnect between the 
chemistry field and AI. So he actually put his entire model on GitHub so other researchers can use it. And he put a tutorial on how he used it. That is awesome. I know that, you're all about open source. So I am. all. And he's probably this, a hero to you. It warmed my heart. It was freaking perfect. And yeah, that's I, I want to also give credit to Carly Schissel, the PhD candidate in MIT's Department of Chemistry that he worked with, that Samesh worked with to figure this out. So She, she did the experiments, actually. She got the experimental data that made the model possible. Yeah, so it's awesome to see these people bridging between different disciplines and then also making it open source so that other people can use this and help improve it. Um, it's something that's very admirable, I think. Absolutely. I agree with you, man. Well, let's take a second and shift our focus from medicine and focus on our faces with a wearable face tracking camera coming out of Cornell. Um, this research is led by Professor Cheng Zhang. Um, and basically the problem or the pain point here that this wearable face tracking camera is addressing is it's really challenging to do constant health monitoring of your face, you know, your emotions, your uh, consumption of food and water, or even to do video conferencing. Like imagine for a teacher trying to walk around the classroom. It's very, very challenging to do that if the camera doesn't move with you. So, you know, you and I are right now sitting at our desks in front of a camera. If it felt more natural for us to walk around throughout the day or talk to each other while walking, we'd have to hold a camera in front of us or have it mounted in front of us for this to be possible. So what this team from Cornell is doing is making it a lot smaller form factor and basically mounting it on a necklace. So you can wear this camera and walk around all day um, and it'll track what your face is doing. Wait, roll, roll it back a second. The video conferencing thing totally makes sense, especially with like the world we're living now where everything is a video conference. But the first portion, how you're monitoring health, that I don't get that. Can you explain that? Yeah, like, wh well, why, why would that matter? Like, how, how is that being used? There are a few big markers for your health. One of the biggest ones being emotions. That okay. is really hard to track unless you're sitting in front of a camera. So right now, the way that we track emotions is by using a camera to track points on your face and see when your face changes to express a certain emotion. Well, if you don't want to be planted in front of a camera all day, there's no really scientific way to measure your emotions other than, like, watching the hormone levels in your blood all day. So it's very invasive, or it requires you to be planted in front of a camera. They're saying that using this device called NeckFace, the necklace for your face, the camera, um, NeckFace. Great um, name. Yeah, it is. The uh, neckband can actually, with cameras mounted to it, it's less intrusive. Um, right. It basically feels like you're just wearing a necklace or a neckband around your neck, and it's got these little cameras on it that can measure your emotions by tracking points on your face throughout the day. Um, oh, that makes sense. Okay. So you put this little necklace on. Uh, it replaces either your webcam for a conference. It can you know, track these points on your face to recreate a version of your face um, so you can walk around and talk and have a virtual conference by wearing this camera around your necklace instead of being mounted in front of your you know, camera sitting at your desk. Yeah. Um, and also you could do it where, you know, as a health monitoring wearable to track your emotions throughout the day. And also he said that you can, uh, track your water consumption and your eating because you can also look at someone's face and tell whether they're eating or drinking as well. The, the emotion one is pretty interesting because like, you know, uh, people, they can get stressed because of work or they might be anxious or angry. And some of it might be like kind of, you know, subconscious. So having something that tracks it without your knowledge, I guess your active knowledge throughout the day might give you and your healthcare provider more insight about what your body's actually going through. Yeah. Well, especially when we've already got other wearables that track things like your heart rate and how you're physically moving. 
um, to be able to attach that to something else like your emotions might give a you know a fuller picture of how the body's doing yeah. and help diagnose certain issues or even just tell you hey you're really stressed you need to relax Dude, I feel like we always come back to like this health monitoring thing. It's 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 converging, and it's from so many different sectors all trying to come into one thing. But it, it really is a fascinating topic. Yeah, it, like, it really is. And I, what this takes me back to the the so what? So does this work? Um, because I don't want to get too excited about something that isn't promising. Yes, or isn't 100%. right around the corner. But they tested two different types of these devices. One of them being like a pendant that hangs on a necklace. Like imagine, uh, you know, a necklace with a charm on it, except that charm is an IR camera. Or another one that they called a neck band versus a necklace. And it had uh, two cameras mounted, one on each shoulder. And they said that the neck band version with the two cameras worked better, which makes sense because you have two cameras looking at the face instead of just one. Um, But basically they did this and compared it to the iPhone's... uh, iPhone 10, I think, the True Depth 3D camera. Nice. And it basically said that with similar accuracy to the True Depth 3D camera, it could track points on your face. And, you know, we trust that camera with Face ID. So whether or not we can, you know, be identified as the person to unlock our phones, we trust iPhone iPhone's True Depth camera that much. And they're basically saying with this wearable necklace, they can get that level of accuracy all day on your face. It can read your lips. And one of the things that I found really interesting for the video conferencing, I think of when I was in these hybrid lectures at school uh, this last spring, right before I graduated, there's a professor who's trying to teach an online class and also teach in-person people. And the professor's struggling because they want to walk around and point at things on the board, but instead they're kind of feeling constrained because they have to sit right in front of the camera. And now they, they have this move. wearable, they could wear it around. And they said that in testing with 13 different participants with 52 different facial expressions, it was able to render an exact version of a headshot of their face doing that same expression wow. using these mounted cameras. So it, you know, it's so it works. been through its alpha testing, let's say the proof of concept. I'd love to see them iterate on this and make it, you know, commercialize it into a device that maybe, you know, you or I could take this call with each other, record the podcast while walking through the neighborhood um, instead of having to sit in front of the camera. Or I think being more active throughout your work or for these professors, allowing them, you know, in this new pandemic ridden world that we live in where it seems like it's never going to end. Um, having the flexibility to be able to move around while you're video conferencing well, uh, is a luxury that a lot of us don't have the ability to have right now. As someone who just started working out again after like a year and a half, two year hiatus, I would really be enjoy having the ability to just have a video conference while I'm jogging. So you know what? Sign me up. I, I'd be totally down to, to be one of their beta testers if they need one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sounds pretty exciting, man. It's, it's and- really exciting. Yeah, on that note, I think it's a great time to wrap up the episode. And Dan, do you know what good friends do for each other? What do good friends do? Good friends get each other to listen to the Next Bite podcast. So if, if you're a listener and you've been supporting us for the past eight, over eight months now, wow, over yeah. eight months, and your friends aren't listening, make sure you get them hip because this is where you want to be. We love you guys. You're, you're an incredible community. And thank you for listening. See I you agree. next time. We'll see you next week. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode, 
And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.